another episode of the ladies rooms as always we are julie DeCaro and jane mcmanus we are here uh to talk about sports and sports adjacent things and sometimes just what we feel like talking about um for example i don't know was it last week or two weeks ago and we just randomly threw bill gates in there at the end that was fine <laughs> that's a fascinating story i don't want to hear anybody say <laughs> that shouldn't be discussed i'm not complaining i brought up woody allen on more than one occasion so, first of all, let me just ask you this, Jane. Are you getting the weather on the East Coast that we are getting here in Chicago? Because it has been like 85 and sunny. This is how it goes in Chicago. It's just, it's like spring. It's like cold and rainy and then boom, it's summer. Yeah, we had a, we had a day like that yesterday, but now it's back to being spring again. So it was summer for a day and now we're spring. I, I think it's supposed to be spring for the rest of the week and then we'll see. We'll see what we get. We are you know. 90s-ish. We are like in the upper 80s all week. So it's, it's, you all have, I guess I judge summer by the moment you turn on your air conditioning for the first time. Oh yeah. It's been on for a week. Okay. So you're in the middle yeah. of summer. We have yet to turn on our, our AC. So I had to get a new AC unit this year. And this thing is like my husband, like I let him do it on his own. And, um, he gets like this Mongo. It is like half the size of our house. I swear to God, this huge monster air conditioning unit sitting in the back of our house, and it is like a meat locker in here. I hate it. Mm. Anyway, uh, speaking of meat lockers, um, it says nothing to do with meat lockers. I just, no, just felt like it, I, I thought I could speaking make a transition. transition. Yeah, I thought I could make a segue at the time, and then it just didn't work out. Um, <laughs> but the reason I was thinking meat lockers, so I was thinking of the CDC, which actually I was thinking of the FDA, but yeah, way, yeah. The FDA um, is more concerned with the meat lockers. Right. It doesn't matter because- it's public safety, though. Speaking Correct. of public safety. Speaking of public safety, the CDC, uh, who recently told us we don't need to wear masks indoors anymore, um, if you've been vaccinated, big caveat, has issued a level four do not travel advisory for Japan due to the, quote, very high level of coronavirus cases in the country. This is a place that is set to host the Olympics. Uh, what opening ceremonies are like July 23rd. So it's coming up pretty quick. They've got like 2% of the population vaccinated. 80% of the population doesn't want the Olympics. And now the CDC is like, oh, yeah, by the way, you probably shouldn't go there. Not, not that you'd be able to watch the games anyway, since um, spectators are, are not going to be able to watch the Olympics this year. But it right. is, um, yeah, that is concerning, right? And I, and I wonder if this is just going to be the new reality, is that we're vaccinated. Let's go do some stuff. And it's going to be like, well, you know, the world is not the same right now. And there are going to be pockets that are dealing with things. And the last thing that a country dealing with an outbreak needs is an influx of thousands and thousands of people who want to do things and interact with each other and spend a lot of time together. Um, you know, just because things look okay here doesn't mean that it's okay in the rest of the world. And boy, the CDC saying not to travel to Japan. I mean, it is impressive how much um, a potential risk we're able to ignore in order to do something we want to. Yeah. Well, let me tell you about my kid's graduation this weekend. Uh -oh. um, that, I mean, it was it was it was exactly like you expect. They told everyone to social distance. No one did. We're outdoors in a football stadium. 
Um, they told everyone to wear a mask the whole time. Half the people refused to wear a mask. Half the people were yelling at people to put a mask. I mean, it was a disaster. I can only imagine what the Olympics are going to look like. Well, but it's it is this is about the spread in the community. Is is there a lot of community spread where you are? Or no? Oh well, that's good then. Then see, that's the issue. It's if there's a lot of community spread, then you can't do much, and that's the problem with Japan. But if there isn't, then I have no idea what we're supposed to do. <laughs> I don't. I mean, and that's why I think it's it's just a complete like everyone is so confused. And I think you make a great point that. You know, I was saying to my husband the other day, how did I get vaccinated before the prime minister of Canada, the members of the royal family in the UK? I mean, I've been fully vaccinated for like six weeks now. Right. And, you know, people overseas, that is not the case. And and I think that, you know, someday we're going to look back on this and realize that we really, for the way that we fucked up COVID from the start, we had a really good vaccine rollout. We really did. We really did. And we were able to really distribute the vaccines really quickly. I mean, and just, you know, from talking to friends that we still have abroad, you know, I have a very good friend my age. Um, her parents were just able to get vaccinated about a month ago and they're in their 80s and she won't be vaccinated until July. Yeah. And, you know, that's just the way it is abroad. You know, it's funny because like on my Instagram, I have, you know, my American friends and I have my friends that I've, that we made when we were abroad and from all over the world. And, you know, everybody's kind of posting their, the day they got back, you know, their vaccine, their little, I was vaccinated sticker. And now we're starting to see that from our friends, you know, in Berlin and in, in other parts of the world. And it, it has, it is very clearly a, a huge time differential though, you know, because when you think like having been vaccinated for the first time in March or April and being able to enjoy the spring. I mean, it really is. I don't know if you remember the relief. I know you remember the relief. I remember the relief I felt when I got it. And, and we don't, you know, the people of Japan do not have that relief. Right. And so the last thing they want is a bunch of Americans who have had the privilege of being vaccinated to come and pretend that COVID is over in a country that is still suffering. Right. Absolutely. Correctly. And, and I mean, we think about, okay, so spectators can't go. So it's going to be media and athletes, but I mean, every major outlet wants to send multiple people, probably. You know, it's it's not like that's a small number. Media from every country in the world, you know, how many people from every country in the world? It depends, but it's a lot, a lot more people than people probably think. Right. And it's then we're not talking about a ginormous nation, also. Like right. the amount of people that an average Olympics brings is gonna is you know, if those people were to become sick, if they weren't all vaccinated, that could be a real burden. Or if they're, you know, if the, if the process of putting on the Olympics causes people to interact with each other in different ways, food to get to the stadium, people to clean up after them, all yeah. of this sort of thing, the hotel workers, the restaurant workers, et cetera, uh, interacting with each other in a, without being vaccinated in a way that, you know, causes a strain on the healthcare system. And that's a problem. Even if, even if the athletes and the folks of them in the media are vaccinated. Right. So I'm just reading Dustin Foote's article here at Deadspin. And he says, uh, 80, the, in the most recent poll, 83% of the Japanese public wants the games postponed or canceled outright. Tens of thousands of Tokyo residents have signed an anti-Olympics petition. And even Tokyo doctors have called for the games to be canceled due to COVID-19. Yeah. How much money do those folks all have? How much exactly. money are they willing to put toward it? Right. Well, and I think that they said that that it, they have already and, and Jules Boykoff has been really outspoken about this. He wrote a great book about the he's written multiple books about the Olympics, but, you know, a great one about just how they, you know, all the problems that come with hosting the Olympics. And, you know, he's really been on top of this story, too. And 
Um, it is not a small, I mean, they, they said that they lost 19 billion just by postponing it a year. Right. Um, so this is going to go forward come hell or high water. Right. Because the IOC, nobody, yeah, the IOC, they're representing the, the people, people without money don't have a say. And right. if you have 80% of that population that aren't putting a dime toward offsetting the losses that the, that taking the games away from Japan would cause, then their voices are silent. They do not matter in the discussion. It is the person who's throwing around the 19 billion. That person matters. And, and the IOC, that's what we, that's what we deal with. Right. The IOC has already secured their penthouse hotel rooms for like a third of the price or less than that. And, um, yeah, and the Japanese taxpayers are going to pick up the rest of it. And yeah, you're right. They have no say in this. So it'll be really interesting to see where this goes. I mean, it would be great, I think, and I, I would feel horrible for athletes, but I think it would be great for the U.S. to sort of lead the charge on this and say, you know, the Japanese people don't want it. So we're not going. But I mean, that's never going to happen either. With all the sponsorships between Coca-Cola and Microsoft and Apple and I mean, I just can't imagine. Well, that you that know, people need to think creatively about this, Julie. Like, where? I mean, if the if the spread is low in the United States, and we have venues here, I mean, I don't know. I mean, obviously, some putting something like that together takes a long time and a lot of planning. But you know, if you're if you're really motivated, I, I don't. I think I don't see that as any less problematic than foisting a bunch of people on a country that doesn't want them right now. Yeah, and that the CDC is saying don't go. Right. And I keep thinking back to when Italy and Ireland played in, I think, the 94 World Cup. And they had the, they made them play on an island in uh, like off the coast of Sardinia or something, because it was just like between the Italians and the Irish fans. It was like it was just going to be a disaster. Um, so, I mean, maybe we could do something like that. Do we have like an empty island we could use for the Olympic Games? What, what about the UFC island? Are they, are they using it right now? I have no the idea. <laughs> Call Dana White. Oh, God. All right. Well, that's where we are with that. Um, I also wanted to talk a little bit about Phil Mickelson winning the PGA Championship yesterday. Everybody I there, Phil. I mean, I, I'm not a person who's been a fan of Phil my entire life, but as he's gotten older, he's really grown on me. And yesterday I felt like he was out there repping Gen X like a boss. <laughs> normally, every normally I point to Lenny Kravitz whenever I want to prove to people that Gen X is still cool. But yesterday we all pointed to Phil Mickelson. Good old lefty out there. I, you know, I was at, I was at Wingfoot. I covered that, um, that, that U.S. Open at Wingfoot in 2006, which was not Phil's day. No. <laughs> well, towards the end, he hit two, like he would, like one, he hit in the rough and it, like in like high grass and another, he hit like into the crowd. And I was like, God damn it, Phil, if you blow this, this is going to go down as your biggest blown, whatever tournament. Probably not true, but whatever. Yeah, right. No, the, 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 it would be hard to beat the winged foot one, though. Yeah. <laughs> For his biggest disaster. But, but again, and I laugh because he's had a very, he's had a wonderful career. He is a beloved person. That is not going to be, you know, the one that I happen to be at is not going to be the final word. The days like yesterday are going to be what fans remember. And, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's definitely one of those athletes that just seems to be able to connect with people it's a it, even if he's not like personally like he's not winning every single major all the time but he does yeah he connects with people and it, you know that's kind of why you like sports right yeah what did you think of the crowd and the way that they so so i know that like reic eric barrett was really bothered by like the way the crowd 
um, was just on Phil. And Brooks Kepka too, said he got knocked a couple times in his bad knee. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, there didn't seem to be a ton of security. And it was like, a, it was a pretty rowdy crowd most of the day. Which is and, unusual for your golf in a pandemic. Yeah. I mean, look, <laughs> I was at the 97 Western Open when Tiger Woods went, you know, mar- when everybody was like marching behind Tiger, that infamous yeah. shot of him walking up the 18th green or walking up to the 18th uh, green. And an and, army behind him. Yeah. Aching the hill. And, and I mean, <laughs> even then, like people were giving him space, you know, right. I mean, they gave him like 10 yards or so um, to walk by himself. But that was not the case yesterday. Oh, that's wild. Yeah, yeah it was I weird. I don't understand that. Because usually, you know, the, there are ropes and there's decorum and, you know, golf tends to be a place where you'd expect that kind of thing. But yeah, it, yeah, there it's it, he's being mobbed. Well, you can see the um, you can see that the cops were kind of having to kind of push people back even. Yeah, it was a it was a much more happy Gilmore crowd than what you would expect <laughs> in a PGA championship. Um, what else do we have? Liz Cambridge. I know you want to talk about this. Uh, yeah, no, I did. I did. Do you want to get to our interview first though? But, and then maybe do that one a little bit later. We can do that. Let's do it. Let's talk to Haley Rosen back right after this. Joining us now in the ladies room is the fantastic Haley Rosen. She is the CEO and founder of just women's sports. You may know her as a pro soccer player and you know her as a national champion at Stanford, but now just Women's Sports set to take over the world. How's it going, Haley? It's going well. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're so excited to talk to you. You know, when I was sort of the first time that I took a run over at the Just Women's Sports site and sort of went through everything, I felt, you know, I feel like there have been sort of attempts at this kind of thing before, not necessarily the way that you guys are doing it, but I know that there have been, you know, efforts to, you know, have sites focusing on women's sports. And there's been, you know, sites that have just women writing about sports. I tried to do that back in like 2011, but it really feels like the timing is just perfect for this with women's sports sort of rising all around us. How did you decide to get this site going? And, and what does it take to get something of this magnitude into this really crowded sports space? Wow, hit me with the big questions right yeah. off the start. <laughs> That's what we do. <laughs> um, well, okay, so my story for like starting just from sports is kind of what you said in the intro. I was a soccer player, played in college and then played professionally. And that experience really just let me see firsthand the momentum that was building in this space. You know, I was a leaguer. I bounced around in every team, every league, every country. We were selling out stadiums. Attendance was up. Viewership was up. You know, we had fans waiting for hours after games to, you know, get autographs from every player on the team. And this was all pre the 2019 World Cup. So I really had the chance to kind of see the momentum start to build. And When I stopped playing, I had a bunch of injuries and had to kind of retire sooner than I would have liked. When I stopped playing and became a working person, it was the first time I was on the outside looking in and I just couldn't follow the space. And it was, you know, we now know that 4% number. And so it was just really, really hard to find anything. But on the other side, like I was actively seeking it out and everything I was seeing just didn't feel like the world I knew. It wasn't authentic to the women's sports that I knew. It felt very pink and glitter. It felt very young felt very focused on, you know, these women as role models, role models, role models. And I was just like, where are the sports? You know, where are the highlights and who's at the top of the table and the bottom of the table? Um, you know, and, and that's really what led me to creating Just Women's Sports. You know, I just thought there was a huge amount of opportunity and momentum um, and that now is the time. 
Um, what does it take to get something like this going? I don't know. We're figuring it out. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> well, let me let me chime in then and ask you about the funding that you all recently announced, which is a $3.5 million in investment from various people, but including a lot of athletes and athlete groups like Kevin Durant's group and a number of other women also who are involved in sports. And just how do you go about talking to to people and actually identifying who might be a potential investor in a venture like this? Yeah. Um, fundraising is fundraising is tough. It's a, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of time on calls. Um, you know, we, before we launched, we had raised a small pre-seed round. So we were always venture backed and sort of being in that world. We just, you know, started meeting more people, meeting more investors. Um, and that's, kind of how this all came together. We went out to raise our seed round and, you know, initially Will Ventures came in as our lead. They set the terms for the round and then we had follow-on investors. Once that sort of came together, it was really, really important for me to bring in, you know, female athletes and the women that make women's sports what it is. And so um, that for me was just hitting people up and just extending the opportunity their way and, you know, talking about how we wanted to have the right partners at the table to really build this authentically. Um, but I will say too, you know, when we first started fundraising, a lot of the conversation was focused on is women's sports viable? Is there an audience? It hasn't worked in the past, you know, and so much of, you know, the conversation was me trying to fight for women's sports and the potential and the numbers and look at how many people are participating and look at these attendance and viewership numbers. And by the time we closed, that conversation had totally shifted. You know, people were asking us, you know, how are we different? What are we going to do better? Um, just totally bought in on the opportunity around women's sports. So, I mean, personally, like, I just think that's really, really exciting and a really key shift in the space. Yeah. You know, I, I was, I've been, you know, obviously following the site and, and I've saw it described as an ecosystem for women's sports, which I think is such an interesting way to look at it because, you know, we talk about the WNBA, we talk about women's pro soccer. Um, we don't, talk about a lot of the other things. Like I saw, there's a story about Nina King getting named athletic director at Duke and Enola Luco taking over Angel City FC. And, and that kind of stuff is, is so important. It's the kind of stuff we get about men, but we don't get about women. And, you know, we see coverage of, of leagues and of games here and there, but we don't have sort of this biosphere where it's just sort of everything about women's sports, all different kinds of women's sports. I mean, I just saw that Simone Biles landed the first double pike Yurchenko on vault in competition, um, the first woman to land it. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm assuming that that's something that you guys are going to talk about. Like, it feels like an integration of all women's sports and all women's sports news in a way that we haven't necessarily seen before. Yeah, I mean, I think that you you just like nailed it totally. So. I, I think a couple of things. I think the first thing is like our name really says it all. We are just women's sports. So like if you want women's sports, come to us. Like we want to be that one-stop shop for all things women's sports. And I think the reason that we highlight the ecosystem is, you know, you you sort of talked about this before, but I, I think that there is basically the timing for women's sports makes a ton of sense. And something that we talk about is when we first started my initial thesis was, hey, there's sports fans and we want to take a certain percentage of the sports fans and convert them to women's sports fans. And, you know, if you like the Lakers, we want you to like the Sparks. And I think that's true. And that's going to be a really big piece of this. But 
what we learned sort of in our early days is there's actually this really large opportunity around an audience that already exists. And basically there's this post title nine generation that grew up, you know, playing sports at an amateur to professional level, and they want to watch the sports that they know. But right now that audience is hyper fragmented. They're following, you know, their favorite team, their favorite athlete, their favorite league, but there's no ecosystem pulling that all together. And that's why we exist. That's what we are building with Just Women's Sports. So Haley, I, I, we talked to Kate Fagan um, last week on the pod and part of what we talked about is just how difficult it is to find games, to find broadcasts. And, I, and I'll be honest, I read off the first, you know, the four games for the WNBA opening night and the, the four games that were broadcast for the National Women's Soccer League debut Saturday. And I got that information from your newsletter, which I subscribed to because it was like a format that was easy to find. Um, and to follow. And also, yes, so congratulations. <laughs> one more, one more subscriber. Um, but also the, the, it was also notable that only one of those games was on net was on network TV. The rest were all being streamed. Um, so, you know, harder for people to find, right. Harder to know if you are, uh, have those subscriber services and just, it, it, it's one, it is, it is about the access to information. And do you, you run into an issue where, you are able to tell stories and to talk about games that are still difficult to actually find and watch. I mean, yeah, all the time. And I think, you know, for us, like we always say like what for women's sports to truly become mainstream, two things need to happen. The first is that the games need to be accessible. You know, I I had someone say to me, um, you know, when someone's flipping through the TV and a women's sports game pops on, like, how do we get them to stay on that channel? And I was like, that is just a scenario that does not exist. You would never stumble across women's sports. It is just way too hard to know, you know, when the games are and how to watch. So we really have to solve for that. We have to make it accessible. But on the other side of it, it's not just enough to throw it up on TV and see how it does. We have to world build. We have to have people know, you know, who these women are and who the rivalries are and what's happening and why they should care. And so for us, that's where we're starting. We're starting with that world building and telling you about, you know, the the, the macro and more micro storylines that are happening in the space. But for us, we have ambitions of making these games accessible and making it so you don't have to hunt through all these back channels and subscribe to multiple platforms to just watch your favorite team. And so I think both things really need to happen. And for us, you know, we are working towards being both things for consumers. Yeah, Jane, I don't know if you saw me on Twitter just screaming my head off trying to find the Sky game the other night. <laughs> I did. Because it said it was on WCIU, but it was on the non-HD version, which I didn't even know how to find. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me with this. Like, with all the with all the rise of the WNBA and the increase in le- viewership and the everything that happened last summer and, you know, like knowing these women and knowing their stories and wanting to support them because of their social activism. And I can't believe I still can't find the game. I was like, it, it was absolutely bonkers. So, I mean, this, one of the great things they have on Just Women Sports, if you go up to the top, it's a schedule and you can click on it and it gives you all your soccer games, all your WNBA games, where they are, what to watch them. That is such a time saver. I can't even begin to explain. So, you, you know, Jane's right. We had uh, Kate Fagan on and we've spent a lot of time on this podcast lamenting our experiences with trying to cover women's sports and trying to watch women's sports and what it's like to be women covering sports in a world dominated by men. And, you know, we talk about this stuff every week. So I wanted to sort of talk maybe a little bit about what is encouraging 
for us. And, you know, every time I see something like just not sports or just, excuse me, just women's sports pop up, I, I, you know, it, it gives me a little more hope when I see someone sharing articles from it, when I see people talking about it, when I see that, that, you know, that athletes are investing, that's great. Um, and, and that gives me, you know, I, I think a little bit of energy to keep going for like the next couple of weeks. So Haley, what are you seeing in the sports space right now that, that makes you feel optimistic, if anything? I mean, honestly, like so much, like, and I know like there's so many people and so many women that have been fighting on the fight. And I feel like this has been like a critical inflection point where there's just so much momentum. And I feel like platforms like us can exist because we're standing on the shoulders of giants that have built and fought and scrapped, you know, for opportunities in women's sports. And I feel like, you know, from more platforms popping up to the increase in coverage to, you know, these athletes having phenomenal social media followings and able to sort of cover themselves in ways. Like, I just think it's, it's happening. You know, we're at the tip of the iceberg yeah. and the ball is rolling and it's going and that's cool. And that's exciting. And, you know, for me too, I've always just been incredibly motivated by the product. Like I've always just thought, like I was blown away why, when I came into the professional scene in soccer, just how amazing these women were like amazing athletes and people and it's always for me just been a phenomenal, phenomenal product that has needed more marketing and that's happening. And like, that's exciting. Like, I feel like, I mean, I'm just saying a lot of things right now, but I, I feel like for me, it's like, we can't go fast enough. Like, I'm like, you know, we are just like, it's like, there's always, there's more to do. There's just so much happening and it's happening so fast. It's like, now is the moment. So I'm going to be, I'm going to, I feel like when you talk about, there have been so many people who've been kind of like pounding on these stores. I, that was me. <laughs> you know, that, uh, raising hand. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, so I, I came out of J school in 1997 and that was after the Atlanta Olympics when women, American women won so many golds. And I really did think um, that we, that women were going to be taking over both in, in media. I thought my sisters were coming up behind me in numbers um, and I also thought that women's sports had found their moment. Women's World Cup came right after that. I was like, here we are, we've arrived. And and just the the constant, the stagnation, the no's, um, you know, for example, ESPN having broadcast rights, but not showing many of the WNBA games per year. You know, these are the kinds of things that y- you kind of realize that sometimes it's, it's forces outside of your control and that, um, you know, it's, it, the optimism can be lost. And so that is why I was so excited to see that you all were able to get this kind of real money and real investment um, going forward. I've also, I was also part of ESPNW and, and there I did see quite a bit of, you know, what you were talking about earlier, which is this kind of, you know, women as mascots, inspirational storytelling. We're not interested in you as competitors. We're interested in the mom that ran the marathon, that kind of thing. And, and nothing against moms who run marathons. Cause that's amazing. But, um, but again, it is that kind of storytelling, which is a one-off and, and I just kind of, you know, is there a different type of storytelling? Is there a different type of way to approach it? And then also how do you plan to spend the investment money? Yeah. I mean, like so much, so much there. And I, I think like to, to go back really quick, like I do think they're like what you said, like women like yourself that have just been pounding the door. And I think one of the key differences now is, you know, obviously we t- kind of talked about the post title nine generation, just this huge influx in participation, 
But I also think, you know, digital media and social media have been the great equalizer. Like starting a network is really hard. Starting an Instagram account isn't. And so I do think there's just technology has opened up all sorts of opportunities in women's sports. Um, you know, for us in this investment, we were a small team scrapping and fighting for an opportunity and a chance. And now we have it. And so with this money, we can build out a team, we can expand our content and we can really start taking advantage and building off the momentum in women's sports. So Haley, I always get, oh, go ahead. I just want to follow up with that. When you say like, are you guys going to be, are you going to be sending out reporters to do like game coverage? Like, is that going to be like, is it just going to be coverage in terms of print? Are you looking to also, you know, I'm I'm just, I'm curious, what is it going to look like? Like, what's your site going to look like as you continue to build? Yeah. I mean, three and a half million dollars is a lot of money and it's also not a lot of money. You know what I mean? So we're, we're just getting started and like, there will be future raises for us. Um, but this phase, like this amount, this money is really about content and it's about building, you know, our brand and our audience. And so for us, we have a website, we have our newsletter, which I'm really stoked to hear you guys subscribe to. And like, thank you for that. Um, we have our social channels and we have an audio network and we can actually make those, you know, the way we think about it is every channel is a product and we want to have, you know, best in class products across the board. And so we can actually do that with this investment and with our, you know, our website, we had a writer for a long time to <laughs> build that out. And like the vision there is to build out a, a, like a, a really robust journalism platform, but you know, we're not going to be there in this race, but we can bring on more journalists and we can have people covering different sports and really start building that out. And, you know, our newsletter, right. We can really make that like the top headlines of the day in your inbox daily. So you can consume women's sports like really quickly in the morning when you wake up and it just lets us like basically build out each of our digital products. So I know there is a, you know, whether or not the powers that be want to believe that there is a large group, uh, especially of women out there who want to see ventures like this succeed. Um, you know, that we played sports growing up that we, you know, played in high school, played in college. We know that the women who go on to play at the pro level are sort of the best of us and want, you know, to do everything that we can to to contribute. So what do you say to people who say, you know, how can I help you? I don't, you know, I can't donate three and a half million dollars, but what can (laughs) I do to help this site succeed? Um, I appreciate that by the way. I, you know, I, I, we always say this, it's like, we just need people to get hype. People like hype, not guilt is going to drive women's sports. And so like, check us out. If you like us, follow, subscribe, do all that. But like, you know, women's sports is a great product. Watch the games, tune in, read the coverage. Like, you know, just have fun with it. I don't think it's, you know, for us, it's women's sports isn't a charity. It, it, It doesn't need support. It needs investment and it needs, if we can invest and we can world build, it's going to have the fans, it's going to build the momentum. And so on a personal level, if you want to subscribe to our stuff, that's amazing. But mainly, you know, if you're hyped on women's sports, just be hyped. I will be honest, Haley. I think it takes someone like you who is able to come into this from, and I, and I really do. I put myself in your shoes in a lot of ways, because I feel like when I was 27, 28, I was, I was coming from the same place. I was coming from, I was an athlete, not not at your level, but I was an athlete. I love sports. I came into sports writing because I love sports and games and following and playing. Um, and then of course the world beat me down. Um, so me, I know, I know it's terrible. It's terrible. I'm doing okay. But, um, 
But I just mean that I think it takes somebody who hasn't had that, um, hasn't had a door slammed in her face so many times, because I do think that that does end up affecting the way you look at potential in the future. And I agree. I believe this is a different moment. And I think it takes somebody who has the, um, you know, kind of, you, you, you really do. You have the perspective of someone who doesn't see why not. And I feel like somebody in my space, we see why not. Yeah. We've seen that happen over and over again, but you were at a place where you're like, why not? Tell me why not. I want to know why not prove it to me. Um, and I kind of feel like that gives you an advantage in this. If you, I mean, do you come kind of compare your perspective with what you've seen before and see why what you're bringing is a little unique? Jane, like a hundred percent. And this is why I always say like, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants, because if there wasn't women like yourselves that have been fighting the fight, like I wouldn't have this opportunity. And I do think I am really privileged to basically be sort of a naive optimist in this space. And I'm green. And like, listen, like I, I have heard this shit and it sucks. Like it sucks being told that you know, women's sports will never be X, Y, Z, or people don't want to see sweaty women or, um, you know, women are too emotional to lead companies. Like I've heard it, but I haven't heard it my whole life. And I haven't been hearing it for years and years and years. And so I like, I I do like, just really want to say like, I feel I have like, I'm really privileged to be green in this space. And I fully recognize that. And so for me, like, yeah, I think there's a, it's a new moment and we have an opportunity. And like, for me, I just really, really try and focus on, I don't know, the opportunity in front of us and that these women are amazing. It's an amazing product. It needs more marketing. That's where we're going to be. And connecting with people like yourselves that like believe in it and get it and can see the future is like super, super motivating. And there's always going to be people that say no and point to all these reasons why it's not going to work, but I'm just trying to focus on the positive. Well, I, I mean, I, for one, think that, and I'm sure Jane agrees, we desperately need green, naive people who are nothing <laughs> yes. but optimistic in this field because yes. God knows there are enough of us who like walk <laughs> around and just sort of maintain a simmering rage, like in a way that we can manage on a daily basis. So, I mean, the site is terrific. We're so excited for you. Um, you know, we, we're thrilled to be able to hopefully push it out to an audience maybe that hasn't discovered it yet. And, um, we are so excited to see what you guys do next. Haley Rosen, CEO of Just Women's Sports. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Haley is great. Uh, Just Not Sports is amazing. I used the uh, schedule on their site so many times this weekend to try to figure out where all the different women's sports were. So that is a great thing to have. Uh, while we're on the subject of women's sports, Jane, um, I know there's a story out there that you wanted to discuss. Yeah, I was was pretty interested. Um, you know, Liz Cambage, who, um, you know, she's somebody with the Aces, longtime player since 2011 in the WNBA. Um, and she put something on her Instagram. Apparently, um, Kurt Miller, the Suns GM, was fined $10,000 uh, for making some comments about her weight, saying that she was a 300-pounder or something like that. And she went on her Instagram to say, hey, for the record, and then she was not, you know, she put her weight and w- it was not 300 pounds. But she was, you know, she was upset about that. And she was, you know, kind of didn't want to be typed for weight. And it reminded me, because the person who said it was Kurt Miller, and so it reminded me of Oliver Miller, who played for... um, 
Oh, right, right, right. A long, yeah. long time ago. And and he people relentlessly mocked him for his weight. And he was 300 pounds on a good day. I think he was like, at one point when he played in the league, he was like 350 at some point. Like there were, you know, it really was like a thing. He was trying to, to lose weight and everything. And it kind of got me thinking about, um, you know, the difference between the way we talk, you know, weight is an element of performance in some ways. And, but we all, we also have to be really cognizant that when it comes to talking about women and weight, um, it is also a, an evaluative, a, 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 what is your worth type of conversation, right? Because as women, you're expected to be as slim as you possibly can be. And that is, you know, you, or else you're not living up to, to the demands of your gender. And so I think it's a more loaded conversation, obviously, when we're talking about weight, especially when we're talking about, um, women as athletes, but it, it, I also kind of loved her bravery about the way that she talked about it. Just like unrepentant, you know, we've had a lot of, you know, women in public life who are, are not interested in pleasing you by being a small size. Right. And I, I kind of, I kind of love that attitude. You know, growing up as a gymnast and then a diver, I I feel like there has never been a moment when weight wasn't like the the most foremost thing on my mind. Um, it, you know, caused me to develop a really unhealthy weight, uh, relationship with food. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in gymnastics, especially diving was a little bit less. I mean, I think they're a little bit more tolerant in diving, but probably because that's where all gymnasts go after they quit gymnastics. But <laughs> in gymnastics, um, you know, it didn't matter that I could do, I was built much more like Mary Lou Retton was built than I was built like Nastia Lucan, who's like very thin and tiny. Right. And there is definitely a size advantage in gymnastics. You need to be very small and very strong. And that is, you know, exists in like almost none of the population. But right. it didn't matter that I could do the same tricks as everyone else because it was like, you don't look as good doing it because your thighs are too big. You know, and that was um, something and and probably ultimately why in the end I gravitated much more towards volleyball and soccer, because being in a team sport where you don't have people looking at you all the time, just you and evaluating you, um, even when I look back pictures of myself and I'm like, oh, my God, I was like a tiny little gymnast. Like, what was I thinking? But I had adults around me all the time saying, you know, you're too fat. Your thighs are too big. You don't look as pretty on balance beam as the other girls. You don't look as pretty on bars. And um, it's. It's amazing to me that you can make it to the WNBA and be at the absolute apex of your sport and still have men out there saying things like that to you. Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, I had two daughters. I have two daughters, and you know, they are not they are not young girls anymore. But when they were little, like there were two sports I I I wasn't going to put them in, and one was gymnastics, and the other uh, was cheerleading. And it was for those reasons, the idea that the the idea of weight being so tied. And I just was, I know how fraught it is to be a teenager having been one myself. And the last thing yeah. I wanted was for them to have those voices in their heads about yep. their size. And so I was like, let's do some rock climbing and soccer. <laughs> you know? yeah. and, and because those are, you know, I, I just, I kind of do feel like those sports are not evolved enough away from the idea of weight as value. And I, and I, you know, and I just, I kind of just didn't want to have to, deal with it. And, and so beyond tumbling and behind beyond those, you know, the trampoline classes and stuff like that, we just didn't even mess with it because I feel like there are lots of different ways to teach kids the values of sports without saddling them with a voice in their head, talking about their thighs. Yeah. And I mean, I got, I remember wanting to just take a knife and cut half my thigh off. 
when I was a gymnast. Oh, I mean, that is really, like, that's awful. it's, it's awful. And, um, you know, I have one kid who is like six, four and, you know, never could have been a gymnast, but I have another one. My second one is, um, smaller and much more muscular. And he would have been absolutely perfect for gymnastics. You know, when he was a baby, he could hang on my fingers. Like he was so strong. Oh, wow. He could just hang yeah. and like, pull himself up when he was like four months old. And I was like, he's, he would have been perfect for gymnastics. And people are always like, God, I can't believe with your background, you didn't put him in gymnastics. And I'm just sort of like, that's why I didn't put him in gymnastics. Um, I think he would have been really good at it. We go to the trampoline park and he can, you know, he could, he taught himself to flip and twist and, you know, everything. But I just could never bring myself to subject my kids to that because I know what it is. Yeah. I mean, I think, right. And, and I, you know, I look forward to, I, and I think obviously gymnastics is undergoing a real assessment about how it treats the young girls who uh, want to be excellent and what coaching is like, whether or not, what kind of, what is ethical coaching? I think is a big question now. And especially when you're talking about young girls and it's because of issues like this. Anyway, I, I mean, I just thought Liz Kambaj when she was talking about on her Instagram page that, you know, she's not going to have it and she's not going to be quiet and she's not going to be like quiet and ashamed about it. Right. Um, and I just think, you know, again, I just, I find, I find a lot of inspiration from like the next level of women, younger women coming up and just not even wanting to put up with any of the bullshit and being like, just calling it for what it is and, you know, throwing it in the trash. Yeah, I I completely agree. And I, I mean, one thing that I feel like we have never understood in this country is that there are people who are bigger, who may even look fat to you, who are extraordinary athletes. Yeah. You know, I mean, I had to be stronger than everybody else because I had more to lift, you know, like it's, um, yeah. And when I see someone, like I said, who's, who's at that level still having to deal with this, it's complete bullshit. And I mean, kudos to her because it's one of those things that I feel like women are so shamed for this, especially white women. I feel like when it comes to weight, like women of color have a much and black women, especially are much more accepting of different body types. Um, and you know, it, it, it's, it, but it's one of those things that you're so taught to be ashamed and you're so socialized to be ashamed of it, that just to come out and be like, this is my body. And I don't care what you think about it is a radical act. It, you know, it, it really is. And may I put in a plug for roller derby once again, yes. <laughs> because roller derby, it, it's all women of all body types, all shapes, sizes, big, small, you know, wide, skinny, light, heavy, there is a place in roller derby. And that is, I think, what kind of like part of the brilliance of that as a sport is that you can find, it's not like you look at yourself and you say, is my body type the body type for gymnastics? No. And you can look at your body and say, what position do I play in roller derby? It's not about, it's, it's the answer is yes. And, and the, just the, all you have to figure out is which position, because, um, you know, it's kind of like the NFL in some ways, because there's a position for everyone of every yeah. size, you know, in a, in a football game. Um, and I think that's the same thing for roller derby is if you, you have a, you will have a strength at some, in some way, um, based on your frame. Yeah. And it's one of the things I loved about soccer too, is that if you can keep up, you can play. Yeah. Nobody cares how big you are, as long as you're there when the ball gets to you. You know, exactly. And, and and anybody, but all of these Kurt Millers, they got to sit down. Yeah. <laughs> sit down, Kurt Miller. Nobody needs to hear what you think of somebody else's body. I hope they throw them in the burn pile over on Burn It All Down this week. <laughs> um, okay. And, and another, another story that we also want to, you know, like just trash this week <laughs> is coming out of the NFL. Yeah. Eugene Chung, um, who was going for a coaching position in the NFL, which he, he's held them before. 
But he was told he's Asian American and he was told as he was interviewing that he was, quote, not the right minority for the job, um, which is rough. It is rough because especially because there is not a lot of representation, Asian American coaches in the NFL. Right. Well, generally. So if you're looking for underrepresented people, um, you would absolutely be looking for Asian Americans in in the NFL. But to be told and this is where, you know, just the gatekeeping when it comes to and if in affinity sorting, right? Like we think of this when we think about what an NFL coach looks like. And generally there that is there the archetype that you're thinking of has a race associated with it. Yeah. And so, you know, and that is not going to be Asian American for the most part. So to say that that, you know, they're not going to that they can't take part in, you know, the Rooney Rule type things. Um, which is interviewing some, a non-white coach for every coaching position that opens up um, to say that they can't take advantage of that. Well, that just means they're frozen out on both ends because they don't meet, meet the archetype. And then they also aren't able to take advantage of, um, you know, programs for non-traditional coaching candidates. Yeah. I saw that the NFL is opening an investigation into those comments, um, which is great. And I'm glad the story got out. Um, because I think that too long or too often people who are marginalized are the ones that are, you know, sort of forced to keep these stories to themselves. So you don't wind up being blacklisted. Right. Um, so I'm glad the story made it out. But, you know, not only does it take away from him and saying, you know, well, it doesn't really matter if you're the best person for the job. You're not the right kind of minority. Um, it also takes away from the person who ultimately got the job in saying that, you know, you didn't get this job because just because of your skill set, which is. Uh, I don't know. The NFL just feels so hopeless when it comes to this kind of thing. Well, but the, I mean, here's the other thing is like, it, it, it's almost, you know, most times when somebody, when somebody sits down, they're not going to tell you you're not the right minority, but they're still going to make the decision based on that. So that somebody actually said it out loud was quite helpful, but I agree with you. The way that these things work ultimately come back to bite the person who said something about it. Well, so unfortunately, this, I think yeah. that's, I'm afraid that's what you're going to see. So when I was writing the book, I sort of thought, how much do I want to include in here? And do I want to put people's names in? And do I want, you know, star whole big thing about this? And I had so many people be like, okay, well, be careful. Don't burn your bridges. And I'm like, no, I am burning my bridges. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, I hate that. I think I've really come to believe that saying don't burn your bridges is, is just a way of keeping marginalized people from speaking out about the stuff they endure while they are in these positions. And I am 100% in favor of people burning their bridges because if people didn't burn their bridges, we wouldn't have the Me Too movement. We wouldn't have, you know, people talking about Black Lives Matter in the workplace. Um, it, like this stuff has got to come out. Right, it's like sharing your salary with people, you know, confidently with, with in confidence with people who are also in your profession, I think. Agree. Right? I agree, yeah. yeah. It was uh, such a taboo. Right. And yeah, I mean, I've, I've, kept my mouth shut about people and they've come back around and I've wound up working for them a second time. And guess what? It was just as bad as it was the first time. <laughs> and I wish I had said something because maybe they wouldn't have that job. Then. There you go. Absolutely. Go forth and burn your bridges. Well, but also this should be, you know, this is going to be an investigation and it's going to be a whole thing in the NFL. And, you know, I just want to implore people in positions to hire that, you know what, hire the Eugene Chung's of the world, right? Make, make sure that they do not face permanent exile because of a story like this. 
you know, you don't know how much he contributed to this coming out or if, if somebody else who was in the room took it to the NFL and said, you need to start an investigation on this. Um, but just, you know what, let's, let's not have it come back to this. Right. Because we all know from the Colin Kaepernick situation that no matter what they say about how much they respect and admire and embrace you, that doesn't mean they're going to give you a job. Exactly. Julie, I think we've solved all the problems. I we've hope solved that all the problems for this week. Have, yes. All the problems for this week have been solved, which is how we know it's the end of the podcast. <laughs> exactly. Oh, exactly. hey, did you see the, uh, it, uh, just to bring in one like completely off sports thing. Did you see the trailer for the Eternals today? No. Okay, so new Marvel movie coming out, The Eternals. Don't know okay. when it's coming out, but like everyone is in this, like, like you know, both Jon Snow and what's Richard Madden, what I can't remember what his name was on uh, Game of Thrones. He died so early on. And oh. um, Angelina Jolie's in it, and Selma Hayek, and Camille Nanjiani is in it. And they're oh, all wow. these like race of like beings who have been watching over Earth as like caretakers. It looks, actually looks really good. I, I when I heard the plot, I was sort of like, eh, but the, trailer kind of sucked me in and the last marvel movie that i thought was going to be blah was captain marvel which turned out to be like one of my favorites so don't listen to me go watch (laughs) the trailer so this is basically movies starring all of the famous actors yes they basically crammed as many people in here as they could get gotcha it's like that last that last scene um you know where black panther comes in and it's you know (laughs) on your left left. exactly yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it looks pretty good. There's this one line where he says, you know, now that Captain Rogers and Iron Man are gone, who's going to lead the Avengers? And it was just like a punch to the gut. I don't know if you care about this stuff as much as I do. Marvel movies, <laughs> especially the last year, I've watched so many Marvel movies because they were on TNT all the time because they mm. had to fill all that space with no like NBA, <laughs> no other sports. Well, so, I, that definitely my daughters are are with you on this. They're both huge into this stuff. Yeah, and we started it when my boys were little. Like, Iron Man, I think, was one of the first grown-up movies they saw. And then it just became, like, a family thing for us to always go to Mar. You know, they would, like, they're, like, teenagers, and they would make excuses not to go with their friends so that we could all go together, like, as a family, which is really (laughs) sweet. Yeah, I know. And so, and, and, like, through the course of the past year, like, I've turned to Marvel movies quite a bit. In these troubled times. Yes. In these troubled times, <laughs> Ragnarok has always been there for me. That's Michael right. Waititi. Exactly. So, well, I'm, I'm glad that there's another chapter coming for you, Julie. Thank you. And I am glad that uh, we got to spend this time together, Jane. It's been lovely. Lovely. Yes, it was lovely. We will see you guys next week. Uh, we hope that you will check out our work over at Deadspin. Give us a follow on social media at Jane Sports and at Julie DeCaro. We will see you next week here in the ladies' room. <laughs>